to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. I'll be bringing the first Bible reading to us. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, starting at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh and come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesied, prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and the tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe breathe into these slain that that they may live. So I prophesied and he command, as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. And I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Our second reading tonight is from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, and that's on page 1116. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died 
has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For you know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's good to be with you. We're continuing our series uh, in Romans, and uh, we'll be, I'll be thinking about that passage we just read. Let's uh, pray, though, as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we come here tonight with all sorts of things in our minds and hearts. We pray, though, that you would grant us uh, the peace and quiet to listen to what you have to say. And we ask that you would free us through your word to go back to our lives with new power to live for Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Two imaginary scenarios. Pam made sure she got to her desk by 8.40 so as to be ready. Sure enough, at 8.45, he walked out of the lifts and passed her desk to the end of the corridor. His name was Ben, and he'd been in her thoughts now for almost six months. She would spend the rest of the day thinking about him in snatches. She would sneakily visit his Facebook wall if she had the chance and look at photos of him. And then at night, if her husband nagged her long enough for sex, she would think about him. She knew it wasn't right, But she just couldn't be bothered resisting. She liked it. And her husband was so uninteresting. So much less than what she'd expected. I mean, she wasn't going to actually do anything. It didn't really matter. God would forgive her. Everyone in the company did it. It was just too easy. If you just shifted a figure here or there, you could log at least an extra half hour a day. Over the weeks, that really added up. They must know about it, thought Greg. They must have decided not to worry about it, otherwise they would have changed the system. Yet Tony, the manager, was hardly on top of everything. Uh, If he was honest, Greg did know it was a cheat. But he didn't let himself think about it too much. After all, if he stopped now, somebody was sure to notice. He felt guilty, but at the end of the day, he thought to himself... It didn't really matter. I mean, after all, he was a sinner. He wasn't going to pretend about that. That's why he went to church. He needed grace. What is your attitude towards sin? Towards the things in your life that are not the way they should be, that are, if you're honest, shameful? It's a big question. It's a bit grim. 
But it's the question we come to today in our series through Romans, when in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul asks, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? We are asked, that is, about our attitude to sin. What shall we say about it? Uh, This is obviously a question asked particularly to Christians. Um, The question, what shall we say, comes after five chapters of explanation of the Christian gospel, the message of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Uh, And so if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, so great that you're here, Uh, really glad, hope you enjoy it, but it might be a little bit like looking in from the outside. Yet I hope that will be interesting to learn how Christians are supposed to learn how to think about themselves. Well, this is the issue before us then. What attitude should we take towards sin? Come with me as we look at it. I hope you'll have Romans 6 open. I'll be referring to it. It's on page... Oh, it's up there. 1,116. There you go. Uh, The bulk of the passage, verses 1 to 11, is in answer to the question in verse 1, and the final bit in verses 12 to 14 draws out the consequences of this. We'll therefore think about this passage under the two headings that you can see on the outlines that you got on the way in if, if you're interested. First, what shall we say? And second, what should we therefore do? Okay, let's go. First then, what shall we say? Verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, at first sight, this this question seems odd, at least to me. Uh, Would anybody really think that? That we should kind of make grace more impressive by needing more forgiveness? The idea follows on from what Paul said just a few verses back in chapter 5, verse 20, where he says... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But would somebody really use that as an excuse to keep on sinning? But perhaps we've just learned to ask the question differently. Instead of putting it like this, we say it differently. We say, well, I know I'm a sinner, but it it doesn't really matter in the end because we're saved by grace, not works. We say, sure, there's sin in my life. I mean, I feel bad about it, but I can't do anything about it. We say, sure, I make mistakes. I keep falling. But does it really matter in the end? I mean, really? You know, if Jesus died for me, does it really matter? In the end, I think we can easily be saying the same thing. We can be saying... That grace really means we don't have to worry about sin. That, in fact, it's okay for us to continue in it. But to this, Paul's response is, you see it there? No way. By no means, it says in our Bibles. But it could just be translated, stuff that. Stuff that. It's a response Paul will use again down in verse 15. No way, he says, is that right? And before we hear anything else this evening, let's all just make sure we hear this. Does grace mean we don't have to worry about sin, that it's okay to continue on with it? Stuff that. No way. 
Well, why not? Why not? That's what the rest of verses 1 to 11 are about, but the short answer is there straight away in verse 2. See it there? We died to sin. How can we live it any longer? The short answer to why a Christian cannot simply continue complacently in sin is that she has died to sin so that it's part of the life she has left behind. How? What does that mean? Well, Paul explains by talking about baptism. Verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Okay, what's going on here? Well, uh, to understand, we have to remember that at this time, probably more than these days, baptism simply was the way somebody became a Christian. It's not that people didn't need to have faith. Nobody thought that. It's that baptism was the form faith took. It was the way you expressed and enacted your faith. Now, the key thing about baptism is that it is about identification. It's about becoming a part of something. It's a sign that is about membership, belonging, solidarity, and above all, it's about being connected to Jesus, identifying with him as you become one of his people. You are baptised, as Paul says, into Christ Jesus, into him, connected to him. And this, Paul points out, that means being connected to Jesus who died and rose again. Connected to Jesus' death and resurrection. That's, that's what somebody who is baptised is, is joined to, identified with. Faith in Jesus connects you to Jesus so that you are kind of embraced by what he has done. You're with him. And that means that being a Christian is in a profound sense about having died and come back to life. Now, of course, we haven't done this literally, uh, although if you have, that would be great to kind of, maybe we could do an interview about that because it would be really interesting. But most of us have not done this literally, died and come back to life. But that's not the point. The logic here is the logic of, if I can put it this way, being represented by someone. Uh, Let me explain. Things can be said to have happened to us because they have happened to someone who was representing us. Um, We know this kind of idea from elsewhere. A good example is in uh, kind of old stories when you've got armies and a champion fights on behalf of the army. You know the idea? Each army, the armies line up and each one puts forward their best fighter and the two go head to head. In my head is the scene from Troy at the moment where Brad Pitt fights that really gigantic guy and puts a sword into his shoulder. It's a good scene. Um, disastrous movie. Uh, you know the point? And so, and what happens is, whichever champion wins, the whole army wins. Right? The champion fights on behalf of the army. If they win, the army wins. And that's kind of the logic of what's going on here. To be a Christian is to have Jesus as your champion. So that whatever happens to him happens to you. If he loses, you lose. If he wins, you win. 
Although the great thing about being Christian is you get to decide whether you'll have him as your champion afterwards. You know he's won. Uh, And so he died, we died in him. He rose, we rise with him. To be a Christian is to be represented by Jesus so that your fate gets bound up with his. And baptism is the sign that marks that connection. Now, just as an aside, uh, I think there's, there's no reason baptism shouldn't have that role today. Um, it's a beautiful symbolic act which Jesus commanded us to use that marks out our identification with him and our being united with him. Uh, that's why, as a church, we encourage anybody who becomes a Christian to get baptised if they haven't already. Um, and I think if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptised, then it would be great to do it. Not because you need it to be a Christian, but because it's a beautiful thing. And it enacts wonderfully this solidarity with Jesus. Okay, but back to the sermon. The rest of the passage expands upon this thought of being in Christ, being represented by him. See how Paul goes on in verse 5? If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Whatever happens to Jesus, you see, happens to those who are connected to him by faith, happens to Christians. That's why the resurrection matters so much. If Jesus wasn't raised, then neither are we, because we're with him. But he was raised, and so we know we will be and are. And that, Paul goes on to say, and here's the key point, right, the key point of this whole passage, that is why we cannot think it is okay to go on sinning. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. When Christ died, those of us who have faith in him died with him and with him went our sin. The whole point of Jesus' death was that sin might actually be dealt with, might be killed off, and that its hold upon us might be broken. Sin leads to death. But Jesus died that death on our behalf, for us. And so sin has run its course. Its consequences have been fulfilled. And so we now must no longer be enslaved to sin because that's done now. Once you've died, you're no longer under the power of sin. That, says Paul, is true now of those who have died with Christ. They are free from sin, justified from it. But of course, that's not all there is to say, right? Because somebody who has died may be free from sin, but they're still dead. But again, the resurrection, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Verse 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus rose from the dead, right? But not just back to where he was before. He rose to a new kind of life. Life beyond death, life that could not be touched 
by death. Death no longer masters him. He died to sin, fulfilling its consequences once and for all. And then he came back to life forever, alive to God, and that is the life that those who are connected to him by faith get to share in. Life to God. Life no longer mastered by sin and death. Because he represents us, because what happens to him happens to us, if we are joined with him by faith, then we live with him. His new untouchable life becomes ours. And so the consequence, verse 11, key verse for the whole thing. Have a look at it there. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We began by asking, what shall we say? This is what we should say. That we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What shall we say about sin? We have died to it. It's part of a former life. It no longer belongs properly to who we are. No, who we are now is alive to God, alive for him, alive for obedience, alive for love. And all of this is because of Jesus, because we are in him. Joined to him by faith because he did on our behalf what we could not do. He fought the battle we could not fight so that we could share in his victory. That's what we should say about sin. So, brothers and sisters, let me ask you what are you going to say? What are you going to say? What are you going to say to yourself? about where you stand in relation to sin, in your heart of hearts, in your mind as you go about your days, in the moment that you face temptation, what are you going to say? Are you going to say that sin is no big deal? That I'm a sinner and that's all there is to it? Are you going to say that God is gracious so you don't really need to worry about it? Or are you going to say what's true? That God's grace means that you have died to sin in the death of Jesus. That your old life under sin was crucified with Jesus so that you could live a new life, alive to God. Are you going to say that Jesus, your champion, went through hell so that you could come out the other side alive and no longer enslaved to sin? That's what we should say. That's how we should think about ourselves. Now let me be clear. This is not saying that we will not ever sin. Or that we will not struggle anymore. That's not Paul's point here. And as we'll see as we go on in Romans, it's clear that there will be struggle and that we will sadly not be perfect in this life. But that's not the issue. The issue is our attitude to that fact, our attitude to sin, our sense of the legitimacy of sin's presence in our lives. Okay, so maybe sin will still hang around. 
The question is whether we are all right with that. Whether we have adjusted to that and become reconciled to that. And that must not be the case. We must not become reconciled to the presence of sin in our lives. We must learn to see it for what it is. An ugly, embarrassing hangover from a former life. Like mud stuck stuck on you after you've emerged from a bog. As soon as you see it on your clothes, you go, ugh! It's still there. We must learn to feel that because of Jesus, the truth is that we have died and risen with him and sin no longer fits. It's no longer at home in our lives. It's an embarrassment that no longer belongs. It is not who we are anymore. And if that's the case, then it's clear what we must do. This is the second shorter point in verse 12. This is where Paul turns. Have a look at it there. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. What we must do is to fight, to struggle against sin. We must refuse it, refuse its rule, refuse to give ourselves to its service and its evil purposes. For it is not us anymore. We've died to that. It no longer fits. We don't belong to sin anymore. It's not our master because Jesus has freed us from that through his death. Instead, we must give ourselves to God, offer ourselves to him and offer our bodies as tools in his service, instruments of righteousness. The image of offering the parts of your body is great. It invites us to think about the different parts of our bodies and what it might mean to offer them to God. Your eyes, your ears, your hands, your mind, your feet. We belong to God now. Through Jesus, we have come to life for him. That's the truth of things, however it may seem at first glance. We are alive to God. We should be ready to be used by him. And what's more, and this is the great end in verse 14, it will not be a losing battle. Verse 14, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. This sentence introduces a new theme about the law uh, which will start to unfold in what follows. But for now, let's just notice what the first thing he says here. Sin shall not be your master. Sin will not be our master anymore because Jesus has broken its hold on us and set us free. We may not feel like this has happened, but it has. It has. If you are with Jesus, you are no longer a slave to sin. And so you can give yourself to the work of getting rid of sin and giving yourself to God. You can give yourself to it with confidence. Confidence that it's not hopeless. That you are not a lost cause. 
but that in Jesus you are and so will be free. Friends, let me ask you, are you willing to give yourself to this work? To the work of putting sin behind you? Of not letting it reign in your life anymore? Are you ready to offer yourself to God as one brought from death to life? What will that mean for you? What will it require of you? As I've been preaching this sermon, uh, perhaps there have been things in your mind, sins in your life that have been hanging around for a long time that you have, in a way, become reconciled to. Maybe your anger, your habits of speaking, your habits of drinking, your fantasies and longings, your greed and unwillingness to give money away, your bitterness towards God. Whatever the case, can I urge you today to see what Jesus means for your sin? That though it is there, it is not you anymore. It's not you. It's what you used to be. It's an ugly hangover from a former life. It is something you have died to. And God beckons you now to embrace the new life he has won for you in raising his son from the dead. So put it behind you. Put it behind you. Leave it behind. Turn your back on it and give yourself to God. It will be a journey. It may be messy, but sin will not be your master because you are under grace. You are in Christ. Let me finish with an embarrassing personal example. I spent a number of years at the end of high school quite enmeshed in internet pornography. I had discovered it during puberty and had sought it out more and more eagerly. I was actually spared the worst of it uh, simply by ha- not having good internet and by my ongoing unease about it. But it was profoundly unhelpful and dark. But then God woke me up during a time of great growth in my first year of university. I suddenly came to see it for what it was, an ugly part of my life that just did not fit anymore. I remember finding a picture on my computer some months after having stopped and just feeling disgusted that it was still there, that it was still hanging on to me. It was like discovering a piece of toilet paper stuck on your leg, you know, after you've gone back to the meeting. I'd come to see, you see, that it just didn't fit anymore. That is what, it's it's shabby, right? That illustration is right. It's, It's shabby. It's not worthy of us. It's not worthy of Jesus. Now, that was many years ago, and thank God I'm free of it by his grace. But I tell this story not because I'm proud. Uh, frankly, it had very little to do with me, and I'm ashamed that I have that story to tell at all. I tell it, though, to encourage you that this is true. In Christ, our sins and weaknesses do not have to master us. 
we have a new and better master. Well, finally, though, can I speak to any here who are not Christians? I hope you will see that what is available in Christ Jesus is actually wonderful. Freedom from being ruled by your failures. Not complete freedom from any struggle. Actually, it might make the struggle more difficult because you suddenly realise that there is a struggle. But there will be freedom from it one day. But it does mean freedom from being mastered by your weaknesses. Freedom from being enslaved to living a life less than what you should. Jesus offers us all the chance to be free through being connected to his death and resurrection. He offers us the chance to know that though we struggle, we are people who belong to life, not death, and whose lives ultimately are a matter not of sin, but of righteousness. That is an awesome thing. I hope you will embrace it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our champion, Jesus, your son, who died in our place, taking our sins upon him and putting them to the grave, and who you raised again from the dead so that we could live a new life, alive to you. Father, please work in us the faith and wonder at your grace that would enable us to live this life and to no longer think of ourselves as mastered by sin, but to put it behind us and to live for you. For Jesus' glory we ask it. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.